The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. Hello and welcome, everybody. This is Sean. This is the latest episode of the Fitness Reborn podcast. I, again, am Sean. I'm the uh, host and the owner of Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And my guest today is Mr. Ben Reuter. He is an exercise physiologist, personal trainer, athlete, and he teaches exercise physiology and nutrition, sports nutrition at the Pennsylvania Western University, California campus. Welcome, Ben. Sean, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, thanks for all the running around I put you through and sticking throughout that. You know, my schedule tends to be chaotic at times. So I appreciate you being understanding with that. All right. So, I mean, what I like to do is I always like to start from the very beginning here, Ben. So um, just tell us, uh, tell us your story. Uh, tell us what got us here. So what got us here, I grew up in upstate New York. And when I went to college, my goal was either to be an athletic trainer, uh, certified athletic trainer, ATC, or a marine biology major. And mm -hmm. I had the good fortune or bad fortune my first semester in college to take a plant biology class, which I absolutely hated. <laughs> I would have had to take more plant biology classes. And my work study job happened to be in the athletic training room. So my undergraduate degree was in physical education. I'm aging myself. I was an allied health uh, emphasis, sat for the athletic training uh, exam, went to graduate school for athletic training at Old Dominion University and worked for almost three years in a variety of clinics in Lexington, Kentucky, and also in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Mind you, my intention at this time was always to end up as an athletic trainer at some small college in a mountain town out west. Hmm. I'm talking to you from just south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so we can see how things have changed. Right. Uh, I had the very good fortune of two things. First of all, when I was in getting my master's degree, I'm dating myself a little bit, but anybody who is involved in sports nutrition owes a big thanks to a gentleman who has since passed named Dr. Melvin Williams. Dr. Williams is probably one of the forefathers or the first people who emphasized sports nutrition and the importance of it. He's one of the founders of one of the journals that some of your listeners may listen to, the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. Hmm. And when I went to Old Dominion, he just happened to teach the research class that was part of my program. Excuse me, not the research class, the sports nutrition class. And I had, you know, read his things and had him in class and thought this was great. And so I actually took an additional class with him. And he was somebody who up until he passed was an avid runner. So he had done a lot of running studies on himself and he could teach in the classroom. He would talk about, you know, this is what the book says and this is what I've actually tried out on, my, on myself. And I got to be just, to be, I would go in and pick his brain because I found him fascinating. And he said to me once, he said, you know, you need to look into getting your doctorate. And I kind of put that in the back of my mind because I was focused on being an athletic trainer. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to, my first job out of graduate school was in Lexington, Kentucky. And somebody who was working there, uh, I'll warn you, I'll name drop, not because I want to show people I know, but because I think that where people end up, we end up because other people spent time with them. And okay. other people 
that they may, you may not know who they are or so other people may not know what they are, but I think you'll find as I continue my story, it's all going to come. So I was fortunate enough to work um, not really with, but in the same clinic as a gentleman who is involved with the NSCA, Dr. Jeff Chandler. And one of the first days that I was there at the clinic working as an athletic trainer, he said, hey, I hear you're interested in writing and doing research. You know, here's some stuff you can help me with. Your name won't be on it, but you can help me with the writing, et cetera. And Jeff was a, had gotten, uh, he's actually the first person to get a doctorate degree from Auburn University in exercise uh, physiology. So I had had this idea of Dr. Williams from Old Dominion that, you know, maybe I want to get my doctorate kind of like the athlete. It's like, okay, I've completed this race or I've completed this event. What's next? I guess mm -hmm. kind of looking to, can I do this? And also I was interested. And it just turns out that uh, my first year out of graduate school, I worked 48 out of 52 weekends as an athletic trainer in addition to during the week. I moved on to working at a clinic in Atlanta, Georgia, under an orthopedic surgeon, kind of as a physician extender. And I realized that if I wanted to have enough money to make a living, spend time, do things that I enjoyed and not just work, I was either going to have to change careers to some extent, or I was going to have to go into administration, which for any of your listeners who sits behind, sit behind a desk, that was not something that I wanted to do. The idea mm. of going in and wearing a right. tie every day and working in a hospital setting just did not appeal to me. Same here. <laughs> and, and, you know, I know there are some people who love to do that, but I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm wearing shorts, I'm wearing a t-shirt. <laughs> and the funny story on that is when I defended my dissertation, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. People looked at me and this was in Auburn, Alabama, where it's very hot. They they said, we didn't know you owned a collared shirt because all we ever saw you were, were is in T-shirts and shorts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so in any, in any case, I was working at this clinic in Atlanta and I was uh, had a very good relationship with the orthopedic surgeon I worked under. And he wanted me to go to PA school, physician's assistant. He said, you know, go to PA right. school. We might help you out a little bit, but you definitely would have a job when you come back. And I kind of wanted to be an exercise physiologist. I kind of wanted the doctor, but I understood that too. And I enjoyed working as an athletic trainer and having additional knowledge as a physician's assistant would have been interesting. So this is where not necessarily name dropping, but just mentioning additional names. I happened to be, to see something, to be a participant in a study running on a treadmill at Georgia State University in the lab of Oh God, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a name a, a brain fart here. Andy, I'm sorry, no, I'm not. Andy Doyle, who is still a professor there at Georgia State, and this involved running for a number of hours on a treadmill. And the graduate student who was there, um, got, we got to talking, and I had said, you know, I'm thinking of PA school or I'm thinking of, of my doctorate, and I had had a bad experience with an interview with a uh, department chair at a school who said, you don't need a doctorate, you're an athletic trainer, that's enough, and just basically said, don't do it rather than saying, what are your career goals, et cetera. So this woman, uh, you know, we got to talking, I was probably in the lab eight to 10 hours total. And I tell this on every podcast that I appear on, I do not remember this lady's name. I know she was a track and field athlete at North Carolina State before she went to Georgia State for her master's degree. And I'm hoping somebody out there hears this and says, I'll bet this is this person and they get in touch with me because where I am today, in addition to the people that I've mentioned prior, I had pretty much decided I'm going to be a physician's assistant. I'm going to work for this physician in Atlanta, Georgia. And I went up to Atlanta, or I went up to Lexington, Kentucky for the Southeastern American College of Sports Medicine. 
I stayed with the friend that I mentioned, Jeff Chandler, because this was going to be my final hurrah in athletic training, exercise, et cetera. And I'm walking through the conference and this woman who had listened to me talk and my career goals saw me and said, hey, you need to talk to Dr. Doyle. She grabbed me by the arm, dragged me over to Andy Doyle and said, this guy wants to be wants to get a doctorate in exercise physiology, but he's not going to do it because he had a bad experience. Tell him why he should do it. And I went from driving up from Atlanta to Lexington, Kentucky, saying, I'm going to go to PA school. I'm going to be a physician's assistant to Dr. Doyle spending the time to talk to me. And I drove back down to Atlanta saying, OK, I'm applying to doctoral schools. I'm going to I'm going to get my doctorate in exercise physiology. And what is so great about this and so great about the opportunity about being in podcasting is I interviewed a gentleman who is involved with uh, USA Ultimate Frisbee, whose his name is Sam Callen. Sam got his master's in exercise physiology because he poked his head in the door of a lab and Dr. Doyle said, said the same thing, hey, come help me. So these people don't realize, or you may not realize the comments that you make to your clients or your patients or your mm -hmm. athletes have long-term ramifications. So cutting it short, because I know I'm expanding this out a little bit, went to Auburn, got my degree, really enjoyed it, uh, worked in uh, Florida for a while at a university, moved up here. And I've been here since uh, the early 2000s, work at a university, do some personal training, because I believe that if I'm going to teach something, I ought to be able to be a practitioner too. And really kind of have delved into something that sounds very similar to you. My girl and I, friend and I uh, run a couple of podcasts and do some other things, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. And our ethos or what we're trying to promote is movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity because mm -hmm. movement is part of what makes your life complete. Absolutely. Absolutely. So obviously there was something about working in exercise physiology and actually being an athletic trainer that appealed to you more than just going into a medical field where, you know, you work alongside an orthopedic surgeon you might actually learn a great deal um, from that. And who knows, you may even decide to take the next leap if that was what you wanted to go into actually being the orthopedic surgeon. I mean, in my experience, I can, I can honestly say on that, I did not have the grades to do that. Right. I mean, I would, right. I would like to say, boy, I'd like to do that. Uh -huh. I was a solid B to low A student, but I was not one of those people who, uh, I make no secret of it. My first two semesters in college, because I didn't know really what I was doing, mm -hmm. I had a 2-1 GPA and a one eight eight nine. Um, mm -hmm. Now I will say, I'll brag on myself a little bit. I never got less than a 3-0 after that. Usually it was mm -hmm. a 3-5 to a 3-7. Right. But I also recognize that some of these people are super, super smart and super, right. super motivated and you know, when people complain about the salaries that physicians get, it's like, you know, that's a specialized training. They can literally change your life by fixing a knee. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get into this. I've had a phenomenal relationship with a retinal surgeon who obviously I didn't meet by choice, but I had injuries. Right, right. But, you know, nonetheless, there was something about working in the actual exercise field, like being being there as opposed to like being a doctor or being a physician's assistant or something like that, that kind of you gravitate towards naturally, you know? And I think what it was is as an athletic trainer, an athlete would come to you and you'd evaluate the injury and you would give them exercises to do and treatment to do. Mm -hmm. And they'd come back and they'd say, well, my knee still hurts. It's like, well, have you been mm -hmm. doing the exercises? No. 
well, have you been following the treatment plan, coming in the training room and, and doing the exercises and the, uh, the modalities? No. And to me, it was kind of, that was frustrating because it's like, I'm giving you the information that's going to help you, but not using it. And I think at some level it was probably like, okay, what can I do to improve their fitness level? What can I do to improve their ability to maybe resist injuries along the lines of when I was in undergraduate, I played JV soccer for two years. I was not very good. I was a division three JV soccer player, so I wasn't good, but I had the opportunity to participate. And I remember my freshman year saying to my head athletic trainer, who was also uh, my academic advisor, like, you know, I, I know I need to get stronger. Where can I get information on this? And he said, well, you should join the NSCA, National Strength and Conditioning Association. So I joined and I got the journals, et cetera. And I mean, that's probably because of, as you said, I gravitated towards the movement, the exercise. That's become my main professional organization over the years. That's where I've made most of my professional relationships and you know, I, I say I say this to anybody who's, who complains about uh, professional organizations. If you find the right professional organization, you get more out of it than you put into it. And I've made no secret when they ask me to do something, to volunteer for something, I'll do it because I wouldn't be here talking to you unless NSCA members uh, hadn't been willing to help me. And people like I mentioned, Jeff Chandler, who mm -hmm. is a big mentor to me, he was involved in the NSCA. And... I think it's important to recognize it's a bigger world. It's a bigger picture than you or me. And I know it's easy to focus in on what you do either in Iowa or what I do in Pennsylvania and not recognize that there's other people out there, literally how you and I connected similar interests. And, right. you know, if you learn something from me and I learn something from you, that right. more than makes up for the time that we're spending together. Yeah, exactly. That's a big part of the reason why I started podcasting and the part of the reason why, well, I mean, almost solely the reason why I reached out to you in the first place. I mean, I saw your, your, uh, your profile on there. I read a lot of things and a lot of things were very similar in terms of how I approach things. So going off of that movements versus workouts. Now that really stood out to me because that became over time, my, my general ethos right there is like prioritizing movements over workouts you know so you know i have my own thoughts on that what are your thoughts on that well i, th I think my thoughts came from life experiences and i would say in 2000 until 2013 or so i took movement for granted i mean mm -hmm. I, I had the opportunity because i went to a small high school to play three sports and when i say small i mean very small i mentioned you know i played jv soccer in college i played pickup basketball i always ran recreational after I graduated from college, you know, I, I did triathlons. I, it, to me, it was normal. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. meet friends for beers. We'd go out for a run or a bike ride. Now we might have a few beers afterwards. If you're in the Southeast <laughs> and you've heard of mellow mushroom pizza, uh, have, have not, you have to go to mellow mushroom pizza for the selection of micro brews and especially their pizza and their breadsticks. So it's easier to, to rationalize or justify that. When you've gone out and you've you've run for a couple hours or you've biked, or you've done something. Now, you don't quite feel so guilty after that, right? <laughs> exactly. 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 Um, and, you know, the listeners, we're totally tongue in cheek. No, we're not. So <laughs> I, I have been uh, I have an eye that's extremely nearsighted. It was from birth. And okay. they told me all my life, you know, at some point in time, you're probably going to have a detached retina. So I don't know the medical expertise of many of your listeners. It probably varies. But think of the eye as being hollow and the retina lining the inside of it. 
So they told me this, and it's one of those things. I don't see well out of that eye. And they told me that, and kind of like you, when they tell you things when you're 13, 14, 15, it's kind of in the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And 2013, I'm out running with my two Labradors. This will be a common theme as we talk. And it was winter, and all of a sudden, I just noticed these little black lines in my vision, just like little tentacles or fingers. And I thought, oh, you know, I've got something coming off my wool hat. I tried to do that. It's like, no it's still there. So of course I call my, my eye doctor, I just my regular eye doctor that I see mm-hmm. every year for an eye exam. And he says, well, you need to come in. And uh, he says, well, you've, you've uh, torn your retina. I'm like, Oh yeah, that's, I'm thinking that's what they told me I was going to do at some point. And mind you limited vision, but still had some vision for peripheral, et cetera. And he said, you know, here's the retinal surgeon that you, that, that uh, you need to go see because, you know, I'm an eye doctor, but I, this is a retinal problem. And, you know, if you, lose your retina, you go blind. And even though I have limited vision, I'd like to keep some of it because it's, it's beneficial. Right. So this is where knowing people and realizing we're, we're uh, probably uh, not as important as we like to think we are because there's other people who know people. Mm-hmm. I happen to have a client from personal training who worked in the same medical conglomerate in Pittsburgh. So I call her up and I say, hey, I've been recommended to see this physician. You work in the same medical not practice, but literally conglomerate. conglomerate. Mm-hmm. Here in Pittsburgh, we have uh, UPMC, and this happened to be Allegheny General or AGH. Um, she goes, let me see, let me call around and find out. Like 20 minutes, she calls me back and she says, that's the doctor that the doctor that I work for sent his mother to. So I'm like, okay, this is good. Goes that's a good reference. Doctor. Yeah, that's a good reference. If, the, if a guy, if a doctor is sending a relative to another doctor, you're like, this is pretty confident. Mm-hmm. Go see the guy. He goes, yeah, you've you've uh, you've torn your retina. I said, well, you know, I'd like to make arrangements to get the get this fixed. He goes, oh no, we do this in the office. So they laser it with the in the office, and they cry out. It's like all good, and I see him for follow ups. All good, and, and everything is good for about a year. And then one one evening, I notice that there's like a black sheet. I have like a half a field of vision. And immediately, because I'd done a little more research since tearing the retina, I recognized I had detached the retina. Now, the real reason this has happened, when you have a nearsighted eye, the eye gets larger, but your body doesn't create more retinal tissue. So it stretches the tissue. So as you get older and you get more and more uh, stretching of the, of the or enlargement of the eye, the retina stretches and it eventually tears or detaches. Mm-hmm. So that retinal detachment started a series from about 2014 to 2017 of nine surgeries and 15 various procedures because it turned into a physics problem. It kept tearing in different places. He'd repair one place, he'd go to another. And all of a sudden, what I had taken for granted, you know, I can go out and run whenever I want. I can go out and bike when I want. I can walk when I want. I can go to the gym and lift weights when I want. All of a sudden, it was restricted because when they repair a retina, sometimes they put uh, an air bubble in the eye. Sometimes they put silicon and you have to hold the position for a period of time. Like after one of them, I had to literally for a week spend about 20 hours in one position every day so that the air bubble would push against where the retina had been repaired. At the same time, I had one of my dogs was diagnosed with idiopathic epilepsy. So run with my dogs or walk with my dogs. We get out for 20 to 25 miles most weeks at their pace. Suddenly things that I took for granted, I couldn't do. She develops epilepsy. I say to the neurologist of my dog. Yes, my dog had a neurologist. You know, what can she do? And she said, (laughs) she can do whatever she wants to do. So I knew she loved to be in the woods. I knew she loved to work. 
or, or love to walk. So I made a commitment that, you know, when it, we're going to go as long as we can, uh, walking her, you know, daily or most days, whatever pace she wants to go. And I was fortunate enough to have her for another four years. Um, but what it recognized as I was recovering from the various surgeries for my eye, and it was epilepsy that was for her that was well controlled for a year. And then by the time she passed or the time I had to put her down, she was on eight different medicines. Shout mm -hmm. out for pet, for pet insurance. Um, most of these are neuro downers. So, but she still liked to move and she still liked to do things. She still liked to walk. And it made me realize that was the time, not necessarily the workouts, but moving on a regular basis. It helped me when she was anxious from the medicine, it helped her. And it made me realize to just kind of come to it and talking with my girlfriend, you know, we all exercise. No, or actually, we don't all. You and I are. Yeah, yeah we are, don't all exercise. That's the problem. In the, we're in the 20% of the population. So mm -hmm. let's just, for example, say we're the 20% of the population. And our goal is, and one of the things we do as personal trainers, we want to introduce more people to, I'm going to use that word, exercise. Mm -hmm. You know, first of all, if, if you're working as a personal trainer, you need to make a living at it. You know, you're right. not doing it out, out of altruistic reasons. And second of all, you want to get a good client base because if you get a good client base, then that's going to bring more referrals and good client bases pay you and you're able to pay your rent. But if we think about it in the big picture, and I had the opportunity to interview a gentleman who's a personal trainer who had retired from rugby due to concussions in England. He made a point that kind of really solidified this with me. He said, you know, no matter what we're doing in the fitness field, we have an obligation to leave our clients or athletes with the tools to progress long after they work with us. Right. And, and, and what it made me realize is if you and I follow the world health organization or ACSM guidelines, and we get our 150 to 300 minutes of aerobic exercise in a week, and we get our two bouts of resistance exercise in, and maybe we're extra special and we do some mobility work or yoga class or something like that. Mm -hmm. And we get, a good solid core of clients doing that too. What do they do the rest of the time? If you sit at a desk the rest of the time, right. or you drive a truck the rest of the time, or you stand lecturing in a high school classroom or a college classroom the rest of the time, you're essentially sedentary. Because if we do all those things that they recommend for, these are the recommended uh, allowances for exercise, we're only moving five to eight hours a week. There's 100 and what, 168 or 169 hours in the week. Yeah, 168, yeah. 168. And if you think about it, I, I've talked to friends of mine in the field. We're the minority who enjoy movement. You know, mm -hmm. you probably do your workouts, but there's other times that you move just because it's like, well, this is what I like to do. You know, right. maybe it's ultimate Frisbee. Maybe it's just like, you know, I want to do that extra run on the treadmill, not because I, I feel I have to do the run, but boy, I love to run or, you know, I love to ride my bike or I love to ski. And so many people going back to, if you, if you think about a lot of people when they're kids, uh, I'm not sure about you, but when I was a kid is basically get the hell out of the house and, and go play and don't come back. Things have changed. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in a rural area, but movement just for the sake of movement, not because it's exercise or not because it has a goal movement as in, if we think about movement as play and fun mm -hmm. is a lost art and isn't done by a lot of adults. You know, when was the last time if you, if you ask your clients you say, Hey, you know, did you, did you meet friends last week for, 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 uh, to, to get together and catch up? If they say yes, ask them, what did, what did you do? Chances are they met for a drink or they met for a meal. 
Right. Most of them didn't say, hey, let's meet for a walk or and maybe then go get a drink or get a meal. Um, you say, what did you do this weekend? Boy, I saw this great movie or boy, you know, you know, I really I really I really enjoyed playing whatever the video game is. And that's not to downplay movies or downplay video games. But what we're doing now, the things that decisions that you're making now are going to hold true to what you're able to do 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from you now, 40 years from now. And the way I explain it when I've taught uh, health classes to, high, to college freshmen, I think you'll like this, two stories of, of two different people. When my parents were first married, there was a woman in their church who fell and broke her hip. And this was in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Well, what they did then when you broke your hip, she was 85 or 86. They put you in bed and said, basically, you're going to die at some point and we're not, you're not worth doing a surgery on. You know, it's a big difference mm -hmm. from hip replacements today in 2022. So right. she lived to be 120. Oh, excuse me. No, she did not live to be 120. She lived to be. Oh, wow. Yeah. She lived <laughs> to be over 100 with absolutely no dementia in a bed. That sucks. I don't care. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how much you love to read, not being able to move, needing help to move. That sucks. I contrast yeah. that. There was a gentleman in Florida. Florida has a lot of uh, rails to trails that are paved. I don't know if Iowa does. Pennsylvania has a few. And this guy went out. He was 81 or 82 years old. He was he started doing triathlons in his 60s and went out one Memorial Day or Labor Day and had a massive stroke, fell off his bike and was dead and he hit the ground. So I'd be talking to these 18 and 19 year old college students. And I would say, that's the way you want to go. Isn't that phenomenal? And they'd look at me and they go, who is this guy? He's got to be absolutely sick. Mm -hmm. Sucks for his family, sucks for his friends, but he was literally able to do what he wanted to do up until the day he died. Yeah. And that's something, he's not the first person to use the term, but he's the one who introduced me to it. I'm going to name drop another person, Don Moxley, who's involved in uh, a fair amount of research. He works for a company called Spernodyne. We talk about lifespan. You know, one of the things mm -hmm. we saw with COVID is, oh, the average lifespan of, of Americans has dropped. Lifespan is important, but more important than lifespan is health span. How healthy, how long right. do you maintain your health to do what you want to do? And if we're just doing the, you know, 150 to 300 minutes of exercise, aerobic exercise a week and doing some, some uh, resistance training, and we're not taking steps the other times to move and be regular, be, be regularly active, but we're reducing our health span. Yeah. And there's research out there looking at, are you familiar with the blue zones? Uh, yeah, I, I think I have heard of that, but I couldn't talk to you about it very well. <laughs> so the blue zones for your listeners, it's four or five areas across the world. One of them's in Japan. Um, one of them is Loma Linda, California. One of them is, I'm probably going to butcher this. It's, it's either Spain or Portugal. Mm -hmm. I believe there's one in South America. These are areas of the world where people live very, very long lives and are active all of their life. Mm -hmm. um, now, Loma Linda, California is a little bit easier to study than some of the others because most of the people who are living these long lives are Seventh-day Adventists. Adventists, I'm probably butchering that. So there are some things that uh, in the Seventh-day Adventist religion, like I believe they're vegetarians, that we know can potentially help because not to say that vegetarian is better, but if you're just eating cold cuts and other things, there are some risk factors with the foods. But they looked at what are the things that make these people live longer in these blue zones. And they found some of the things were they 
ate basically minimally processed foods. So most of their foods were whole foods. They ate in moderation. So rather than having that large cheese pizza, you know, you'd have a couple slices of the cheese pizza. Mm -hmm. Um, They developed strong interpersonal relationships. So they had relationships with other people. They weren't living as hermits. They had a purpose. And that's, I mean, you could say, what, what is the purpose? Well, for some people, it may be, maybe they have a garden that they spent. That's like, like, that's their passion or they have the family or they have a charity, something that gives them a purpose. They get up in the morning and it's not, you know, you getting up in the morning and say, ah, it's a great day to be Sean. What can I do to be more, to, to be more selfish and to do things for me? So there's a bigger purpose for them. And then all of them were quite active. Not exercise, but they move. So they did a lot of walking. They did a lot of cycling. And if you think of a lot of the older people that you know, those of them who maintain that robust health, and you've probably met some of them, and you find out their age, and you're like, you got to be kidding me. They're not that old. Uh They probably are active, whether it's chopping wood, walking. There's something that they do more beyond what we would think of as air quotes for you and me working out. I remember talking to my retinal surgeon who is from Belgium and his dad is in his eighties. And when they go to their summer home, he bikes four or five miles to the local bakery every day to pick up his bread and he bikes back. So there is no right or wrong movement, but we need to, I believe as professionals, we've failed miserably at encouraging people to move as exhibited, depending on the statistics, you know, 20%, 25% of the U S population meets the recommended guidelines of movement. That's the bare minimum. What Mm -hmm. can we do to encourage people to move more? And I think it's not only for people like you and me who are adults, but what we can can we do to for people who are introducing movement to their families? I know I interviewed a lady for a podcast here in Pittsburgh who got motivated to start running because her daughter wanted to do something to raise uh, money for a charity. So she and her husband did did it to support it now. So now she runs, her husband runs, her kids ask on the weekends, where can we go? You know, what running race can we do? We want more ribbons. They have a ribbon uh, place in their kitchen where they hang all the ribbons that they get from doing these races. Okay. And you may say this, I mean, she, she makes no secret. She said, you know, I was a junk food addict. I smoked, I drank, I drank soda. I was 30 pounds heavier than I, than I am now. I felt like crap all of the time. And boy, that's great that she's not that way today, but she's got four kids that she and her husband have set an example for where that's the norm weekends are mom and dad and the kids go do some sort of movement. You know, the norm isn't mom and mom and dad go out to breakfast and bring the kids back donuts. So I think just across the board, anything we can do to encourage people to move more is a positive thing. And we need to figure out ways to do that. So what would you say to someone like, you know, I work with people, you know, professional people and they're very busy, uh, even if they're not professional people, if they're like, you know, stay at home mothers or something like that. And they've got like three, four kids and they're very busy and just, you know, they probably already move around a lot already, but to actually make it like a, um, like a uh, scheduled or a regular system of actually moving around and getting that movement going, getting, you know, the blood pressure blood pumping, getting the, uh, you know, the synovial fluids in the joints, you know, to keep everything nice and working well. What would you say to someone like that who says like, you know, I do, I'm meeting with you is about as much as I can possibly give in terms of like my schedule will, will allow. I don't know what more I can do beyond that. That's a, that's a great question. And 
they are the exception in that they've already made the commitment or recognize the importance of going and seeing somebody. Mm -hmm. So I would say a couple of things. First of all, battle is the wrong term, but it's an ongoing journey or path or communication. You know, it may not happen you saying something the first time, the second time, the third time. And you may feel, well, I'm just going to give up on talking to Ben because every time I tell him, here's what you should do, or here are some recommendations, he comes back and he doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. So I would say a couple of things. First of all, know the client or more importantly, the client has to know themselves. Right. Like if I ask you, if I'm working, if I'm working with you, the first thing I want to know is when do you prefer to move? Mm -hmm. I'm a morning mover. Like my idea, if I, if, you know, if you said we're, we're filming this, it's uh, 530 in, in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area where I am. The chances of me going out and doing any sort of consistent movement, exercise, whatever you want to call it from now on until I go to bed, slim to none. I just mm -hmm. don't move. Well. I don't enjoy that. I can find all kinds of excuses not to do it. But I do enjoy the early morning. I like getting up early. So the first thing is you have to figure out, okay, when do they enjoy? We're just going to call it movement. We're not going to call it exercise or workout. And there are some people who just, you know, they, they're set in what it is. So that's number one. Number two is figure out what all their other responsibilities are. Because you mentioned a mom, if she's got three or four kids, you know, anytime she's around the kids, you know, she's involved in the actual child care of the kids. There probably isn't a lot of time for her to say, okay, what can I do for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? Mm -hmm. So example of that, a good friend of mine from college, when her kids were growing up or when they were younger, when they actually needed childcare before her husband went to work, she met a friend of hers in her neighborhood at four 30 every morning. And they walked. Now she's not a morning person, but she was, she was in the nursing profession, right. in the nursing profession. She recognized like, okay, I know I need to do more than I'm doing. I can say I'm going to go to the gym more times a week, or I could say I'm going to do this, mm -hmm. but you know what? There's no excuse for me to do anything at four 30 in the morning. Other than this, if I'm not doing this, I'm sleeping. So I'm going to right. make a commitment that I'm going to do this. The second thing for her, she's a relatively social person. Yeah. So she knows with the people who are saying, you know, I don't know where I can fit more time in figure out if they enjoy doing solo activities or they like, other activities, mm -hmm. depending on the age of the kids, you can do things with the kids that are, that are, that are, uh, that are playing at, at in movement. Great example of this is when was the last time you walked, you ran, you, you, uh, traveled past, or you took somebody to a play, kid to the playground. Mm -hmm. You see the adults. Why don't the adults go down the slide? Think of it. I think I saw uh, you had a kid in the background a, a minute ago. Yeah, that, yeah, that that was my son. And uh, on that topic, you know, he periodically goes out, and a lot of times he asks me. He goes out and he plays these very inspired games, usually fighting games. You know, lots of fantasy and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times, yeah, we do actually go to the park, and if the day's nice or whatever. And yeah, lots of times the the adults are kind of just huddled together and they're talking to each other and the kids are running around. Um, every so often you see an inspired adult. Sometimes it's me who is like climb, who is like climbing up on the, the equipment with them or something like that. But yeah, so you're right. I mean, having little kids, especially ones that are filled with energy um, and they don't have, you know, a buddy to play with on hand. So they'll choose dad as the next best option. That's a great way to do it. <laughs>
and and one of the things is as an adult i've mentioned this before we forget what it's like to play you know we have job mm -hmm. we have family we have responsibilities mm -hmm. i challenge any adult who takes their kid to the park and says you know i'm going to go down the slide with my kid or i'm going to swing on the swings of my kid or if there's a, a small zip line, I'm going to go on a zip line with that kid. I, I challenge them not to finish and not have a big smile on their face. Right. It's fun. Yeah, it, it, you know, we're it's so, fun. You know, it's, there, there is this image. It's like, oh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a professional. I can't do that. Why not? You're, set, you're setting an example for your kids that movement is the norm. It's not like, okay, you go to the park and play or you go to the, the baseball field and play. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine, when I was in graduate school, had a son who, was a, who played youth soccer. So I'm sure you know what youth soccer can be like. Yeah. He and he and his <laughs> wife would alternate who would drive the son to the soccer game. And they if it was locally. The one that wasn't driving would run. And typically one or both of them would have their bikes with a trainer to put it on. They'd, they'd put their bikes on the sidelines and they'd, they'd either bike during the game or they'd run laps around the field. Not because they were trying to say, look how, how, how uh, fun I am or how important, because they recognize, okay, my son's going to be playing soccer for three or four hours. I want to spend time with them when, when, when we, we go home, mm -hmm. et cetera. How do I get my movement in? Right. Right. You can do so, right. So that's, that's a way right. figuring out or recognizing, um, micro bouts of exercise. I know that there's right. a, a physician that, that, that I know who in his office, he has a kettlebell, he has a TRX hung suspension trainer. He has a chin-up bar. So between clients, he can mm -hmm. go in without getting, or patients, he can go in without sweating. He can get in, you know, a, a set of kettlebell swings or, or some pull-ups or some sort of exercise with the TRX. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a, a freak. I practice uh, what I preach. I have kettlebells in my backyard when my, go, my dogs go out and they're kind of nosing around to do their business. Mm -hmm. I may do some kettlebell swings. I may do some walking lunges. Um, I've got a suspension trainer hanging upstairs. I've got a suspension trainer in the middle of my living room. Fortunately, my girlfriend likes this. She's like me. I've got a suspension trainer, tra uh, a jungle gym in my backyard. I've made a conscious choice for a couple of reasons. First of all, I like it. I love to move. Like people often say, what's your, what's your favorite way to move? Well, my favorite way to move is to spend an hour to an hour and a half in the woods with my dogs and my girlfriend, mm -hmm. come back and then go for a bike ride. So I've been able to do that today. It's a, it's a weekend day. I had for me the absolute phenomenal day of movement, but I also recognize, and this is where people often know you better than others. When I went for my doctor degree, the gentleman that I mentioned, who's my biggest mentor, mentor, Dr. Jeff Chandler told my doctoral advisor without me knowing it, if Ben's ever a jerk to deal with, send him out for a run because after he gets some movement in, he's much better to deal with. And I suspect if you think when your son's bouncing off the walls, if you can get him to do something physical for a few minutes or maybe an hour, depending on how active is, he's much more settled down and easy right. to deal with and much fewer disciplines. Yeah, he tends he tends to be once he gets out gets outside or something like that and gets some bursts of energy out, he'll come back in, he's ready to settle down into doing whatever again. Like he's like, you know, hyper, hyper, hyper. He gets out and gets his energies out and he comes back in and he's okay. You know, so yeah, I have re I have recognized that, and just kind of uh, to add to your point here about the micro movements. You know, a couple of weeks ago, my kids were at Taekwondo, and I didn't have really anything to do at that time. I was just there. It's an hour long class, and I'm just kind of hanging outside. And I'm outside because I just wanted to be outside instead of just hanging inside the dojo doing nothing. And so uh, I was like, you know, I'm bored. 
And I'm sitting here and, you know, I'm sitting on a picnic table. I decide, you know what, I'm going to do some box jumps on this picnic table. So I just start leaping up and down on this picnic table, up and down, up and down, back and forth, back and forth. It's like, oh, okay, that was good. Uh, maybe some push-ups right here. So soft grass, you know, yeah. And came out of it feeling pretty stellar. So yeah, yeah, just little things like that. Little things. I've got a, a friend whose uh, kids are all are also in martial arts, um, and his business is he he runs a bike fit business. Mm -hmm. Swift. He's actually put some uh, spin bikes in the dojo. He's talked to him, and when his kids are taking classes, there's three or four bikes. He hops on the bike and spins. He gets some of the other parents to do that and talks to them, so they're able to watch their kids and do that. Um, think about it when you go to the airport. If you you mentioned busy people, mm -hmm. you know. You've got very rarely can you get a direct flight anywhere now, so you're you're usually connecting. And if you have time, how many people do you see not on that human escalator but walking? When I lived in Atlanta, one of the great things that I used to love is you could walk all the way from the gate all the way to luggage claim, and it took about twenty to twenty-five minutes, which was perfect because you know you could take the shuttle and you could take the the escalators, and then you could stand around twiddling your thumbs and playing on your phone. Or you can get 20 to 25 minutes of walking. Right, right. By walking. Right. So I think it's knowing, to, to summarize, for, for based on what, what the question you asked a few more, know your clients, make sure they know themselves, and tell them it's not a all or nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, there are re all kinds of responsibilities and stresses in life, and our body has to be able to withstand them. So the mother who's got four kids is trying to work a full-time job. Her husband's got a high-powered career, too. This probably isn't the time for her to come to you and say, you know, Sean, I'd like to bump it up from two days a week to four days a week. And by the way, my husband and I are training for the Ames half marathon. There's probably too many things going on. So one of our jobs with our clients, athletes, patients is where the non-emotional bounce back. We're the non-judgmental. You know, it's very easy for you, for somebody to say, Oh damn, I had to cancel with Sean today. I'm a complete loser. You know, I'll, I'm never going, I'm never going to improve my fitness. Right. I tell my clients a couple of things. I tell them, first of all, if you get to the end of the year and you've achieved 75 to 80% of what you intended to do movement wise. So if you have clients who are able to make it to you 75 to 80% of the time, we're assuming you have a good cancellation policy and you're not losing your shirt when they cancel and good clients won't do that. They'll say, look, you know, this is my problem. Mm -hmm. That's a success. The other thing that you have as a, a professional working with people, whether you see them a couple times a, a, a week or once a month or something like that, you have that non-emotion. You can look at them and say, look, no wonder you have you know, what? no wonder you can't do more. This is some things you can do. Great example from that. When I had the uh, dog with epilepsy and I had those multiple surgeries, my activity level obviously decreased from what it was in, say, 2012, 2013. So just as I'm feeling I'm coming back, I'm constantly getting these little niggling injuries, etc. I herniated a disc in my back do the recovery for that. And still constantly these little niggling injuries can't bike as much as I want, can't run as much as I want because things hurt that don't normally hurt. And I had the opportunity through uh, recommendations to interview a chiropractor athletic trainer who I then said, well, I should talk to this guy. And this is probably the best advice anybody gave me. 
first visit I saw him, and he, I see him, I still see him every, every three or four weeks, specifically for him to watch the way I move and say, this is the way you need to tweak this exercise, that exercise. He looked at me like 20 minutes into our first visit and said, the reason you're having these problems is it's 2017 and you're t- training like it's 2012. You had four years where your activity level was significantly reduced. Your body cannot handle what you did in 2012. Mm-hmm. Slow down, be more conscious, and you're going to be able to do those things. And I can say today I'm doing more than I did in 2012, basically because he had that non-emotional looking at everything that was going on and said, you know, this is what it is. Right. So some clients may not be able to do more. But they probably can do those micro things. Right. The other thing is, depending on where you live, I interviewed another guy, Dr. E, who, said, who uh, was living in Spain at the time. He said, my American friends look like me like I'm crazy when I say we go for gelato a couple times a week. It's like, how are you not gaining weight? He said, what they don't recognize is, first of all, we walk three or four kilometers to the gelato shop as a family, him, his wife, his, his little boy. So you, you, could, you know this with kids. Mm-hmm. When you, if you're going to walk three kilometers or if you're going to walk you know two miles whatever it is you may walk two miles the kid's probably going to walk four because they're bouncing around oh what's that over there hey i want to hang on this tree branch they'd have a serving of a gelato which if you've ever talked to people who are coming from australia or europe the first thing they say about americans is how the hell are your food portions so big so the food portion of gelato is much smaller and then they turn around and they walk you know three to four kilometers home right compared to many people they may say, okay, we're going for ice cream. Everybody in the car, they drive for ice cream. They sit there, they go home. <laughs> and I would argue if you have time to go for the ice cream, go for the ice cream and then go to the park and walk around the park or make right. conscious choices where we get into what you and I talk about. It's movement. It's not exercise. It's right. not, you have to do this much. You have to quantify it. Now, if you're using an aura ring like I use or you use a smartwatch, you're going to be able to quantify the exercise. But at the end of the day, Think about what are ways that I am not active that I can be more active. I'm on a standing desk. I'm at a wobble board just because for me it's more comfortable. Right. And I'm more likely to be functional. The other thing with moving more, and I think you'll, if you talk to people, they'll tell you this. You come up with great ideas. All of my good ideas and all of my bad ideas have come when I'm walking with my dogs, running with my dogs, or on my bike. It just seems that that stimulates the thinking. I've interviewed yeah. a physician who says he likes to, you know, if, if you get in a habit of moving, and even if it's just an evening walk where, you know, 15 minutes before you go to bed, if you've got a dog, you take your kids, you, you go for a, fi- a 10 or 15 minute walk, just kind of the closing of the day. You'd be amazed at the things people will say to you or the conversations you'll have because they're not, you're not sitting across the uh, dining room table from your, your kid who's, who's doing uh homework or playing on the phone and saying, so tell me about the day. Right, right. And all of a sudden they're on the spot. But if you're walking along and, you know, there's much more opportunity for spontaneous conversation with all these electronic devices and all this time that we spend focusing on inactivity, we don't necessarily get. Right. So talk to us about like what does movement do for you holistically? Yeah, we talked a lot about what it does for you physically. Let's, let's talk about what it does for other parts of your being. Yeah, I would I would make the argument that yes, the physical stuff is an added bonus, but the other things, um, I've heard people say that when people get fidgety, and if you've ever taught in a classroom, I've not, but I can high school or middle school classroom, (laughs) and I this actually just occurred to me now. 
I was one of those kids that they always say, you know, he has behavioral problems because he's mouths off, et cetera. I was, I was, you know, I was a eight year old boy who was bored. I never had any problems in fourth grade. The reason I, now thinking of just talking with you, the reason I probably never had problems in fourth grade is, you know how you do like multiplication table drills and spelling, spelling, uh, spelling drills and things like that. Mm -hmm. My fourth grade teacher would take a, a, a Nerf football or a Nerf basketball and throw it around the classroom. Like if there were 20 kids in the class, she'd throw the ball, you know, she'd ask a question. And if you knew the answer, you'd raise your hand. She'd throw the ball. And you'd have the choice of answering the question or give it to somebody else. Just that action of throwing and catching, mm -hmm. et cetera, had that benefit of if you were fidgety because, you know, it was the third period you had and, you know, recess was the next one. Mm -hmm. So I would say for people who are fidgety or saying, I just can't concentrate, you know, everything moves. I think movement can help on that. I had, and there is absolutely no medical, I'm not a medical doctor, but I had one of my committee members in doctoral studies who had struggled with depression. One of the comments that he made was, he goes, you know, I wish more physicians before they started prescribing antidepressants would recommend exercise because you get that endorphin by moving on a regular basis. Right. It stimulates thought. It makes you more functional. And here is what I think is the biggest thing for being more, I'm going to say physically fit because it's movement, exercise combined. Everything that we have, that we do in the world, everything that you and I do causes a stress. Physical stress, emotional stress. If you think about back when you were in college, finals week, either during most finals week or shortly after, you probably got sick. Am I right or am I wrong? I never really got sick. I guess I never got myself all wound up about finals, but I know plenty of people. I, I, well, I, I, know, I know plenty of people who did get wound up by it, yeah. So if you think about some of the stressors just looking at a college student, first of all, probably not sleeping enough. Mm -hmm. As adults, we can, I, we can count that. I, for, I, we can count I still that don't for sleep enough. <laughs> yeah, and I would say that that's hugely important. Um. Most of us could improve the way we eat. Mm -hmm. Most of us probably have things that really, really bug the crap. They're like, there's certain things that, you know, if I, if I want to fire Sean up either in his job or his personal life, there's probably one or two buttons that I can press. So if you can recognize what are these things, maybe movement can alleviate that. Mm -hmm. So good friend of mine from Auburn, um, career military guy. One of the things he said is he was, he's in a command position. He said, you know, one of the things that I've often done in various commands is if my second command is a runner too, we meet most mornings and run. So before we go to staff meeting, we talk out all the problems that we're having with people who are under us. He said, you'd be amazed at the number of problems that, you know, were on our desk the previous day that we thought were severe, that just with the running and talking, we realized, Oh, here's a solution. So I think it can encourage us to think. I think it makes us less stressed. And I think the biggest thing is the stronger we are, the better we're able to manage the stress, both psychologically and physically, hmm. the better we're able to withstand additional stresses. So right. I mentioned the college students who are most likely to get sick. So, you know, crappy diet, poor sleep quality, most of us probably didn't love most of our college roommates that we were with. So there was some stress there to, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a crowded room. The dorms, if you were living in a dorm or even if you're living in a college apartment complex, 
are noisy. Um, if you're doing alcohol or other, other drugs, that's an additional stress. And your body's going, okay, okay, we're handling this. We're handling this. Now you've got the study stress. Financial stress. Excellent point. Financial stress, boyfriend, girlfriend, mm -hmm. mom and dad, you're not coming home for Christmas. What do you mean? Right. If you pile on that additional, oh my God, I, I've, uh, I need to get this grade or I need to do this well. And your body's like, okay, that's it. That's that stress that I can't with hand. I, I can't handle my body's going to get sick. Or yeah. So if we think about recognizing what our stresses are and how we can mitigate them, a lot of it can be mitigated by moving or being aware. Okay. I know this is, I know I'm going to have to be on this conference call with this person and they drive me up the wall. Can I take this conference call by walking? You know, can I go for a walk afterwards? Can I knock out a quick set of pushups? Mm -hmm. I think it sets us up to be able, better be able to make, because movement is a stress. We want it to be a use stress or a good stress, not a distress. And at some point in time in all of our lives, we're going to have something happen to us that's totally unexpected. Right. Is it a car accident? Is it a loved one dying? Is it losing your job? Is it a car accident? The stronger you are, the better you're able to withstand that additional stress, the more likely you're out coming out on the, on the far side going, oh, wow, right. that was pretty good. Right. It, it's somewhat of a hot button topic. But if you think about what's gone on in the country over the last two years or so with COVID, think about if you look at the statistics, the people who have significant problems are people who generally had pre-existing medical conditions, pre-existing movement. Yep. Um, and, you know, you whatever it is, one of the ways everybody has failed who's in the movement health profession is not encouraging people to move more, not encouraging people, I'm not going to say diet, mm -hmm. not encourage people to manage their weight or understand the effect that weight has on hormones, on their joints, et cetera, and making people recognize that, you know, in stressful times, and this was one of the things that when they, they said it, when it first came, it's like, well, you know, it's, it's a stressful time. So if you want to have that extra piece of cake or that extra ice cream, or you skip a workout, that's okay. No, that's the, those are the things that are going to help you. So when you get that additional stress and the other thing that I think all of us as movement professionals have failed at is giving people the power and the tools to move without us. Why do you think, There's too much well, why do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think the, you know, the fitness industry has been so kind of dropping, you know, dropping the ball on that kind of thing so much like we, we all more or less, we preach the same thing. We preach exercise uh, healthy diets, um, relieving of stress, good sleep, all that kind of stuff here too. So by just not, um, not really living up to that standard and not really, um, really honoring that to the people that we work with, that you're supposed to, you know, movement is a, is a medicine that can help you with so much in your life. Why do you, why do you think, why do you think that is? I think a lot of it is fear because if you think what we've talked about, at best, we're, we're seeing 20% of the population mm -hmm. at best. Right. So there's the fear of if I give somebody the tools where maybe instead of seeing me twice a week, they only need to see me twice a month. I'm going to lose income, mm -hmm. which is a rightful, potentially rightful fear. 
or there's the fear if another trainer or another fitness professional comes to you and you've seen this and this is where social media is bad there's the fear it's like oh you want to find my special program well you can pay for it all of us as you said are doing the same thing mm -hmm. you're not inventing just to throw out an exercise you're not reinventing the squat you may have better cues or different cues but what makes you a good personal trainer is you people are coming to you because of your personality mm -hmm. so i would make the argument that if you are thinking that it's more than me, I'm in the profession because I want to help people. I want to give people the tools so that somebody can come to me. Hey, you've given me the tools. I only need to see you twice a week because I'm doing all these things. I'm walking with my husband. I'm doing kettlebell swings with my 12 year old daughter. The fear on the short end is we're going to lose. I think the the benefit on the long end is on the long game is they're going to be they're going to recommend people to you because you're not the one who's saying hey you need to see me three times a week and if you don't see me three times a week then boy you can't do that give people the tools to be successful spread the word and the problem I mean you know it's it's difficult and I firmly believe that the outstanding people are going to going to rise to the top. And if we keep preaching this message and saying, look, this is movement. I'm a huge fan of reaching out to people. Um, I, I had a lady who was recommended to me by my rolfer. She was an older lady. She came to me. She said, look, I don't want to see you on a regular basis. I want to see you for six weeks and I want you to give me the tools so I can do, I can do the following things. So there was no impetus for me to say, I got a hard sell. I got to really lock her in. I gave her the tools. I've gotten mm -hmm. three or four clients over the years since that because of her. She's, hey, you need to go see this person. So I think a big reason we don't do it is there's the fear because we have this small pocket of people. Mm -hmm. I think I saw on your website you tried to specialize, or maybe it was your LinkedIn, people who were over 50. Yeah, yeah. So I tried to, I mean, it's not just people over 50, but, you know, I'm trying. Everybody, but, everybody but, has their specialization. Right, like, like this. Right, but it's, yeah, it's. You know, the older end of the, the crowd is where I'm trying is who I'm trying to reach out to mainly um, because I think they're the most underserved out of everybody. I mean, fitness culture and youth culture seem to walk hand in hand with one another. And they they the, the young are advertised to like, I don't know, five to tenfold more than uh, someone who is 50 and older, I feel like. And and and. and and, and I think they feel like, you know, the young crowd, they tend to be low hanging fruit because, you know, if you go to any gym anywhere, predominantly, you're going to see young, healthy, good looking people walking around anywhere. And I've actually, I've been told, you know, by people who are in their 60s and stuff like that, that, you know, it's because of that very reason it's intimidating going there, you know, <laughs> especially like in, especially like in this town, this is a college town. So some of these major gyms here, you have some college level athletes. Some of these are junior Olympians and they are just amazing, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I think from a selfish reason for professionals, I know a number of people who work specifically with an older pot or not only, but that's their area of emphasis. Mm -hmm. Look, let's be selfish they're more likely to be more established in their career. So they have money to spend. Right. Number one. Number two, they're the ones who have begun to recognize the things that I did when I was 20 
I can't do now. I can't. I can't go down. This is you mentioned college. I can't go out to the local bar and, and down eight to ten beers. Get up the night next day and go to the gym and max out on a bench press. Mm-hmm. Uh, third third thing with these people is they've started to recognize it's not so much about how good do I look with my shirt off or how good do I look in my sports bra, but can I go skiing with my kids? Right. Can I get down on the floor with my grandchildren. It's simple so, things. It's simple things that the young take for granted. Yeah. Simple, simple thing. I mean, if, if you tell me, if you told me some of the aches and pains I have now at 54 that I was going to have at, at 22, I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, now, I can do things at 54 that I couldn't do at 22 because I'm smarter about it and I've got more education. And I recognize that I'm not invincible. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the, one of the things with, with the older population is, and this, this is a, a key point, do you want to live a long time or do you want to have a, a, have a, a, a long health span? And doing those little things, even if they're seeing you once a week and you're giving them home exercise programs, or you've had the opportunity because of COVID to do, you know, to use Zoom or so, or something else, that's the real service. And those are the ones who, when they're when they're in the office or something, are going to say, "Hey, we ought to have this guy come in and talk to us." You know, come in and talk to us about, uh, you know, how can I set my desk up better, or. Let's get you. Let's get Sean in on, on a Zoom conference, and he can explain. You know, here's six exercises you can do between the Zoom meetings because you're working from home, and otherwise you're just going to sit at your desk and surf the internet between, between meetings. Right. I gave a talk in July at the NSCA where I spent an hour talking about and demonstrating and have people go through exercises. Basically, here's what you can do when you're sitting at the desk in between. Uh, working or here's here's some you know arm stretches arm exercises shoulder exercises and a, a significant number of fitness professionals said this is great stuff i can use this tomorrow with my client right right the more value you become where they don't get the idea of i'm here to sell them sessions but i have this information i can share this information yes you're going to have to pay for some of it but some of it's free and i see you've done some of that you know i mean especially with today's uh, with cell phones, it's so easy if somebody says, hey, I was trying these exercises that you told me to do at home. Am I doing these right? And they send you a video clip. You can text them back one or two cues right there rather than them coming in next week and say, man, my shoulder's right. killing me because I was doing these exercises. And you watch them doing it. And you go, oh, you're doing it wrong. Right. Going back to what you talked about earlier, the fact that you were looking, uh, you considering becoming a physician's assistant to an orthopedic doctor. Um now, you know, orthopedic surgeons, because I just know they, their bread and butter is knee replacements, hip replacements, you know, all things like that. And I'm just thinking like, and I want, want your input on this, because a lot of this is done on older people, obviously, you know, people in their 60s and 70s. Um, do you think a lot of these people who have to have these double knee replacements and things like that, do you think had they been more consistently um uh, been more consistent about moving in safe and, you know, healthy sort of ways, um, whether, you know, as an athlete or just in movement in general, do you think they could have avoided having their knees replaced? I'm going to give you a three-part answer that's going to answer it. First, first of all, 
I will, I, to one extent, I agree with your comments about orthopedic surgeons, but I've also been fortunate, maybe it's because of the experiences I've been put in, um, of having a number of orthopedic surgeons who are not what I would term cut happy. For example, when I herniated my disc, I knew I didn't want surgery. I knew it was going to take physical therapy. And I remember the uh, surgeon looking at the MRI and seeing the disc protrusion and seeing my ridiculous symptoms down my leg and the orthopod saying, well, how's the pain? I said, it hurts like a blankety blank blank. He goes, well, can you handle it? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, I think this is going to resolve in six to eight weeks. He said, I don't think you're a surgical candidate. Whereas I know there are other surgeons who say, oh, we need to give you surgery. Mm -hmm. And there are certain conditions where you have to have surgery immediately. Right. Second part of your question, I remember a work situation that I was in, and there was a lady in her late 50s who was extremely obese. I know we're not allowed to say this because this is, you know, political correctness, um, wokeness, et cetera, but she was obese. Mm -hmm. and she was five foot tall and probably 250 pounds. I don't know why she was obese. I know she didn't exercise. I don't know if it, why was it, but when I was there, she had to have bilateral hip replacement. And I remember somebody asking me, he said, well, Ben, you're an athletic trainer. Do you think that her weight had any, and she was a very nice lady. Do you think her weight had anything to do with her needing to have a hip replacement? And I didn't know her medical history. So I said, it could have. So I think, yes, if you're carrying around excessive weight for a long period of time, it can. And then the final thing, incorrect exercise technique or not having the ability to do certain movements. Um, Stuart McGill, who is renowned for doing right. Research, yeah. um, that, I do know that name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He talks about people who have uh, shallow hip sockets and deep hip sockets. Um, and he's, you know, he looks at, he says, you know, both of them can squat. He said, generally given and a deeper hip socket is generally going to give somebody a more stable. Hip. We're not going to drop down the medical rabbit hole. He said, generally, both of them can squat successfully. He said, what I've seen is the people with the more stable hips who try to squat really deep are the ones who are more likely to damage their hip, hips and need replacements later in life. And I will say in the strength coaches that I've come across, I heard, I've heard a number of, I know a number of them who are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who have hip replacements. And a number of them have said, well, you know, if you squat heavy and, and you reach to 50, and you don't have to, you don't need a hip replacement, then you haven't done, you haven't lifted heavy enough. This gets back to what I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the podcast, the former rugby player that I interviewed. We have a duty or responsibility, not only to help our patients if their goal is to lift, or athletes, if their goal is to lift more weights or to meet a competitive goal, but also not set them up for failure. Mm -hmm. Now, this is completely different if somebody is an elite athlete. Um, you know, right. you, always hear, you always hear that that's an entirely different, if you're working with an elite athlete and they say, my goal is I want to make it to the Olympics and fill in whatever your favorite event is. Mm -hmm. If, if they're, I mean, if they're a child, if they're a, a youth gymnast, you know, you, you do get into some ethical things, but there are some things, nobody is going to argue that playing professional football is healthy including professional football players, you know, right. the orthopedic problems. If you talk to a lot of very successful linemen, say nothing of concussions and neurological concussions. damage. I mean, one, one of the things I was fortunate enough to know somebody who worked with a professional team in Florida. And he said, many of the players said, I can't wait till I retire and I can lose weight. For example, uh, 
I think his last name is Thomas, Joe Thomas, who was a lineman for the Cleveland Browns for many, many years. Mm -hmm. I think he played 15 years in the NFL. Heard him on a podcast. He entered University of Wisconsin, another Big Ten school, um, at like a 215-pound tight end. He played in the NFL as an offensive lineman at between 295 and 325. And he said, you know, one of the reasons I retired is it was painful to get off the floor or get down on the floor and play with my kid. So what he does is when he retires, he loses 20 to 30 pounds, or excuse me, when he retires, he's down to like 220 pounds and he does master swimming. He's got some joint problems, Mm -hmm. but you can see some pictures of him now and he is completely ripped. Now, obviously he's got some good genetics if he played for 15 years in the NFL, Mm -hmm. but somebody along the lines gave him the tools to say, Hey, just because you're retired doesn't mean you can sit around and eat. You need to do something to get your weight at a more healthy level. Right. Right. So I think, I think the things that we do now, set us up down the line. And I think the medical, especially orthopedic, orthopedically, like I've got an ankle that's unstable. I know the things that I did as a kid playing on a sprained ankle and repeatedly sprained it had an effect of making the ankle it is today. Right. Would I do something differently knowing what I know now? Heck yeah, I would have done rehab. I didn't have access to an athletic trainer. Mm -hmm. How well do you think your message is received? Um, You know, because I just think, you know, because we're talking about, you mentioned, you made reference to this before too, that the fitness uh, industry and personal training is a sales industry. So retention and holding on to people is a big thing. And you don't have a huge pool, generally speaking, of clients to pluck from. So you, you really, you really got to, you feel like you got to kind of nail down that, that niche, that, that the thing, the niche, especially in the internet and the social media area, the niche has become the thing, find the niche and, and, uh, really double down on it. So the idea that, you know, emphasize movement, give people the tools that they can set off on their own. So they don't have to feel like they, they are just dependent on you so much for those two, three days that they meet with you to get in those five hours that we spoke of earlier, you know, during a course of a week, five hours out of 168. Uh, how do you feel like that message really goes over with people, especially if you're talking to people who work directly in, in this space? I'll answer it two ways. First of all, generally the response is yes, I agree with that because I'm not saying just do movement, forget about personal trainers. I'm a huge fan and I think where a huge market is, and I will preface this with saying I'm in a unique position that I personal train on the side. That's my passion project. That's the second thing because I do have a full, full-time job as a college professor. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned at the beginning, I believe in practicing what I pe- preach. But I will say, I think the emphasis in the fitness field of saying, I need to get clients in where I'm seeing them two times a week or three times a week, or if you get that client who just has a lot of money four times a week versus saying, I want to see you periodically. There's a famous physical therapist out there um, who is phenomenal. Anybody should, if you can pull her up on YouTube, Dr. Shirley Sarman, who says that she would like to see physical therapists do a wellness check on people every year, not go to physical therapy every year for treatment, 
but come and see, check the way they move, etc. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan and I've done a lot of it is seeing people for two or three sessions, giving them a program that meets their needs that they can do, bringing them back periodically for another two or three sessions to peak it. Because that opens it up. Because let's face it, we are, if we're seeing somebody even twice a week, that's a big financial commitment for them. That's a lot of money and maybe beyond something. So I'm a huge fan of saying, look, how do we make this more professional? How do we give them more money? But let's expand out to the people that we can potentially reach, whether it's going and speaking at the business, you know, at, at their business luncheon or speaking at a local rotary club, whether it's you're writing a blog post where, you know, you're not selling anything, but you're giving them information that you think is common sense. But some people are going to go, I, don't, I didn't know that to and this is where there's so much out there on, on social media which is good and bad you know i don't really like the exercise techniques one because everybody's there but just conversational like one of the things that my girlfriend and i do is we do three times a week we do movement tip lifestyle hack videos just little one minute videos that we post on the different things because my thought is yes the message is well received boy that's a great idea ben but the only way it's going to it's going to take off is if you just continually preach it, continually preach it, continually preach it. And the only way that works, whether it's what I'm what I'm saying or what somebody else is saying, is if you also truly believe. it. Mm -hmm. And if I've got one person and I know enough people have, have told me for things that I've worked with and that this has made a difference, you know, that's intellectually right. tells me I'm doing doing the right thing. Right. I mean, there's no question to be successful in the fitness field. You have to scramble. You have to probably step outside your comfort zone. Um, but if we think we're probably 20% of the people are doing some sort of relationship with a fitness professional, if that, mm -hmm. even if it's just going to the local gym and, and the, you know, the person saying, hey, I'm spotting you, that leaves a huge percentage of people who maybe as you said, are intimidated because of the environment mm -hmm. or other reasons that if you come up with, again, I'm like you kind of not really sure about the term, but you, you come up with your niche, mm -hmm. your little area, right? All of a sudden it's like, Oh, wow. So I don't know if that exactly answered your question. I hope it did. Yeah, I did. I mean, it's, 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 it's always a fine line to walk. I mean, I think every person, just about every person. I shouldn't say every person because I know that's not the case. But I was, I'm safe in saying 99% of people who go into personal training, just the same as like 99% of people who go to med school, in their heart of hearts, down to the marrow in their bones, they really want to help people. And they get a, a big rush of satisfaction, personal satisfaction, especially when that client or that patient communicates to them, Man, this helped me so much. I'm feeling so much better. You know, um, I just I got this just the other day from a person I'm working with. You know, she has um, she's had issues that she came to me, very specific issues that she came to me. And she was saying that just in the little bit of time that we've been together, that she's already feeling better, that the, the situation that was dogging her is a little bit more controlled now. It doesn't seem to be so much out of her, out of her control. And it's just, it's, it's just very good to hear that, you know, you know, it's very satisfying, you know, you want to help people, but yeah, you have to, you have to uh, balance the scale of, yes, I want to help people, but yeah, I got to make a living at this too, you know? And so 
and you know, you get, you get fearful about just the idea of people just constantly walking out the door, you know, because you know, that's your income walking out the door as well too. I, I, it's, it's not an easy profession to be. In. It's, it's not, it's, it, it's not, it definitely takes one. You have to love it. You have to, you have to, um, practice what you preach, you know, too. So, so you can't just, you have to be the walking example in some ways you have to, people have to know that you actually do this stuff. They see you do it, you know, either on social media or in person, you know, they see you do it. They know that you are your own advertisement, you know? So, and you know, you have to, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of perseverance that comes with it as well too, because it's now the industry is crowded more so than ever with the, um, proliferation of social media. And you really gotta, you really gotta be willing to fight through the ups and downs. And I think a lot of that comes, I mentioned, I think for many people, there's the fear of sharing too much or, mm -hmm. you know, I think two of the things that could help you really stand out are number one, not being afraid to reach out to people who you admire mm -hmm. to ask them, you know, can I, what would it take for me? You know, can I, can I shadow you for a day? If they happen to be in a close facility around you or could, you know, would you be willing to give me 20 minutes on the phone and here are the questions I want to ask you people who are in the field name drop again. I know Rick Howard, who's at, at uh, Westchester university said, who's involved in uh, long-term athletic development and youth training said, hey, I never want to be the person when somebody asks me a question or calls me that I'm not willing to give them the time. He said, it pays back in spades. Mm -hmm. I would not be here if uh, Andy Doyle at that meeting at uh, Southeastern ACSM had not taken time to spend 15 to 20 minutes. Ago. So I think that's number one, being willing to reach out to people and Hey, there's going to be jerks. But there's also going to be people, I mean, you've probably seen with, with your podcast, there are probably people that you've reached out to and you're like, yeah, this person's a big name. They're never going to respond back. And they turn out to be the most genuine people. And when you finish, they say off the air, hey, if there's anything I can ever do for you, Sean, don't hesitate to reach yeah. out. I love what you're doing. Please let me help you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, have, by the same, I have noticed that. And I haven't done this very long already. And by the, and by the same token, be willing to be generous to be generous with your time. Yeah. So if somebody says to you, Hey, would you come talk to my kid's classroom or something like that? I mean, obviously you have to make a living around it, but there's so much of the fear. Well, I don't want to give away my special sauce. I don't think there is a special sauce. The special sauce is what's in your heart, what's in your knowledge and the way you present the information. I taught a, a weight training class as an activity class when I was at Auburn university. And one of the things I had the students do is design just a basic resistance training program for themselves. And I told them, I said, look, we could set a goal. I want to, if this happened to be what it was over the next eight weeks, I want to increase my max bench press. I could write a program. You could write a program. And that person over there could write a program. All of them could be equally good. So there is no special. If you're doing the coaching, you may be better suited for some people than other people. Mm -hmm. You know, you may, you may say, boy, I really connect with those 65 plus what you think of as the little old ladies whereas somebody else might not be or i really you know i really connect with whatever it is so be willing to as you said look for your niche and be willing to share your knowledge with people because nobody's going to steal your knowledge 
And the more you give back or the more you're willing to share, the more people are willing to share with you. Right. Exactly. All right. All right. Well, Ben, uh, we're going to start to finish up now, but um, talked about a lot of different things here in the almost hour and a half that we've been on. So um, now I love the conversation here. So what's what's in the future for you? I mean, you're you're a college professor, you're a personal trainer, uh, you're on social media. I've seen that already. You're busy, busy dude. So and what what do you what do you see in your in your, in your forecast here? Well, I plan on continuing doing the same things. I mean, I think I tell people, you know, the, the podcasting ebbs and flows as far as the guests. You get eight or nine good guests. That we, I'm always going to do that simply because I learn so much more from people whether I'm on a podcast or I interview something. Right. And then I get exactly. Um, and I mean, one of the one of the things, you know, as, as I talked at the beginning, I'm a mover. You know, whether I get paid for it, I don't get paid to move or not. And we do these movement tip and lifestyle hack videos because that's our life. And if we can motivate other people to recognize, hey, moving is the norm. It's not unusual to move on a regular basis. I think that's the message that needs to be passed on to more people. Even if you are at this point in time, you don't have the money to pay Sean, you know, three times a week for personal training. Mm -hmm. Maybe you pay him for a visit once a month or once every six six weeks or something, and you do things on your own. I think I think the big promotion is we need to figure out ways to make people more active, and that's what I'm going to do, leading by example and just continuing to talk about it until people say, "Oh God, here's that Reuter guy again talking about movement." <laughs> oh, there's a, there's another question I want to ask you. So, um, and I don't know anything about you other than what you've told me and what I've read, but. Um, would you, if it were feasible, would you just do, uh, personal training and nothing else? I think if I did other than the, the academic, if I did personal training, I probably would still do the podcasting. I still would do the movement tips. I still would be, try to be involved with my profession, with my professional organization. Because I think if I just went to the gym every day or, st or just went to the training studio every day, I think it would get very stagnant. So I think the more you expose yourself, I'm sure you finish some of your podcast interviews and you're absolutely jazzed to get back in, into the, uh, the fitness studio or the gym because you've got all these ideas and all this encouragement. So I think I wouldn't do just personal training alone. I would bring other things related to movement in it also. Right, right. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of the same way too because I mean the very fact that I do stuff like this too. It's like just kind of like pigeonholing yourself to one thing or another, you know, and you kind of get you kind of get told that you should, you know, focus on one thing and then, you know, be a master of that and not spread yourself too thin, but you know, in my book that's kind of a recipe for mediocrity. Um but if you think about what you do as a personal trainer to encourage people to move, encourage people to everything, or encourage people to exercise, if that's the term we're going to use, mm -hmm. by having a podcast, you're exposing yourself to new ideas to help you with your teaching and your coaching. You're exposing others to your ideas. And as you mentioned earlier, what you're doing is you are walking the walk. Mm -hmm. You're saying, look, it's not just what I do from, and we both know this is not true, but this is not what I do nine to five because it's not a nine to five job. 
this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what turns it in. If you've got somebody, if you're working as a personal trainer, you're like, okay, I, I'm able to get uh, four to eight clients a day. And I'm able to teach two classes on the side, two days a week. And that's all you do. That's a job. When you say I do personal training, um, I think I, I saw on uh, your link from your Instagram page, I think you've got a, a course or a book. You've got a podcast that, that you're putting out. You're treating it as a professional. Mm -hmm. It's a life. You know, you're not, it's, a, it's a life. And so when somebody says, and, and what you're doing is you're putting your name out there because now if somebody Googles, you know, Sean Carlton, it, and uh, it's going to pop up in multiple ways. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were just doing your personal training in the gym or the studio, Depending on your social media presence, it's like, oh, here's the guy, and yeah, he here, here he's doing stupid Petrick exercises or good exercises. <laughs> but now you're bigger picture, right. you're expanding essentially what's your brand, yeah, which is a fitness professional, and that's what I think separate the fitness professional is, is willing to, or the professional of any type is willing to number one share, right. but also doesn't have the pride where they're not going to ask for help, right. And there's some people when you're going to ask, you say, hey, can I talk to you? They're going to say, no, you're just some little peon. And there's other people, you're just going to be amazed at how generous they are. And that's what's going to keep you jazzed up and excited and treated as a profession rather than, okay, it's five o'clock. I can go home and get on with my life. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right, Ben. So as we wrap it up here, what, one thing I like to ask my guests at the very end of the broadcast is, and you've already kind of, you've touched on this several times, I think, as we've been talking, but just to kind of rein it in at the end, there's one thing that anybody who's listening to this or will listen to this can walk away from and remember from you, if nothing else, what would it be? Two things. First of all, our ethos, movement is a lifestyle, not just an activity. So if you can figure out ways to move more, I suspect it's going to enhance your quality of life. And second of all, just a little shill, because as I said, we do movement tip lifestyle hack videos that you can find on any of our social media channels, mm -hmm. FIT, LAB, PGH, gives you some neat ideas. Feel free to use some of them, not use others. But the other thing, if you're a dog fan, most of them take place when we're in the woods with our lab. I've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't, just turn the sound off and watch two dogs just enjoying enjoying life and take that as that one minute or that one minute of 30 seconds. Right. Leave aside the stresses and look at two, two dogs who are living their best life and having fun. Right, right. So why don't you uh, give, it, give us the social media and the, or the websites and everything that people can find you at. Best way to do the social media, and we have done a great job of, on this just by being consistent. If you Google F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H, FitLab P-G-H, about the first three pages are going to pull up all our podcasts and all our links. Or if you take that, and you go to Instagram, F-I-T-L-A-B-P-G-H, anything that we do, one of the places we post it there. And there's a, uh, a um, not LinkedIn, but in our bio, there's a, there's a uh, website that takes us to all, all of the, our podcasts, et cetera. But F-I-T- It's like a link tree? F-I-T, link tree. Thank you. I was thinking link tree. Yeah. <laughs> it's, late, it's late in the day. <laughs> yes. So there's a LinkedIn, but the easiest way rather than saying, go here for Facebook, go here for Instagram, right. go here for TikTok. Yeah, it's a nice shortcut. It's, it's a nice shortcut. And, you know, pretty much know that there's probably going to be a lot when we do podcasts of promoting other people too, because the idea, as I said, is 
making more people recognize movement as a lifestyle. Not an activity. Exactly right. And we'll put all that information in the show notes so people can find it. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And uh, this again is Ben Reuter. Thanks, Ben, for showing up and giving us so much great information. Sean, thanks for giving me the opportunity. As you have probably gathered, I love to talk about movement. Yeah, no worries, man. That's what I brought you here for. <laughs> I didn't invite you on to talk about baking. So it's all good, man. All right. Uh, so, yeah, this is the Fitness Reborn podcast. Um, you can find me at my social media. It's Renaissance Trained at on Facebook. That's a business page. And Renaissance underscore athletic. That's the Instagram. Those are the two main um, places to find me on social media. Of course, I'll post those as well. Also, too, just remember I have courses out on Teachable. Um, some are free. Some are, are for payment. I'll put a link on there as well. Have a look at it. And it's all going to be out there, folks. So, again, this is the Fitness Reborn Podcast. My name is Sean from uh, Renaissance Fitness Personal Training. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you again. Take care, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments. Cancel anytime. Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.